Ken Wilbur, how you doing, man? Good, buddy. How about yourself? I'm doing great. Good. Yeah, this is actually uh, an, an exciting weekend. We're, uh, we're driving down to New Mexico tomorrow to uh, get a new puppy. Oh, excellent. Yeah. All right. Yeah, we're all very excited. We're getting a, uh, an English Golden Retriever, which I think is, is just perfect for an eight-year-old girl to grow up with. Right. So. Sounds perfect. Yeah. Sounds just right. So well, have a good time. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. It'll be a fun trip. It'll be nice to get out of town too, um, yeah. which I haven't been able to do in over a year now. So that'll be, right. that'll be a lot of fun. <laughs> um, so let's just jump into it. Yeah. So today sure. we, we're, we're going to be talking uh, integral epistemology. Okay. Um, and I, I, I've got a really dumb joke that I'll start with. <laughs> okay. Uh, student asks uh, a professor, what is epistemology professor? And the professor says, how do I know? <laughs> I told you it's a terrible joke, terrible joke. <laughs> but you know, basically the question of, of epistemology comes down to exactly that. How do we know stuff? Right. Um, and like, you know, all the great philosophical quandaries out there, it's a fundamentally straightforward question that ends up leading us into all sorts of endlessly branching uh, chicken and egg kind of meditations on right. the nature of existence, uh, ontology versus the nature of knowledge, epistemology. Right. Um, and this is obviously, I think, a topic that's really, really important and relevant to today's world, um, to our understanding of current events and to the various uh, strategies and processes of sense making that we're all engaged in. And, you know, Ken, I think this is particularly true of, um, you know, the information age that we're in right now, because it's, it's never not been the case that we haven't had all of these sort of conflicting epistemologies rubbing up against each other. Right. But this is the first time that we've lived in a media space that is just completely and totally uncurated, right? right? So we don't have any epistemological referees saying, hey guys, you know, this is maybe a little bit more real right. or a little bit more deserving of your attention than some of the other right. stuff going on there. And as a result, we've fallen into things like flat earthers and QAnon. And I mean, yeah. all this ridiculous you know, sort of the symptoms of broken epistemology, really. Um, and it seems to me that that our world is in this radical state of confusion right now around these very basic questions of how do we know things? How do we go about verifying knowledge? Right. What is truth? What is belief? What is justification for our belief? Um, so that basically really wanted me to have a conversation with you about all of this, hoping that we can kind of climb our way out of this aperspectival madness that... Um, I think we're all sort of swimming in these days. Sure. Um, so maybe we, we start off with, you know, a real basic question, Ken. Um, what the hell is epistemology? <laughs> um, I'm hoping you can sort of offer a, you know, a brief history of the emergence of epistemology throughout history. Um, what are some of the most important core concepts? Uh, what are some of the most important core questions that epistemology is trying to answer right and you know maybe you can actually help us kind of piece together there's so many different schools of epistemology out there right. from empiricism rationalism skepticism pragmatism i mean the list i sent you a list of like a dozen of these different schools and we're going to uh, discuss each one of those oh fantastic fantastic well how about I, i'm just going to hand it over to you then um and let you kind of uh, riff on this because you know okay. my sense is that this is going to be a really interesting conversation and we're going to see how 
you know, the integral approach both sort of situates these various schools of epistemology right. while also kind of breaking them in really interesting ways. Right. Um, okay, well, let me start with just a couple of the general things that epistemology deals with and some of the background disagreements that you find in the field as you look through it. Probably one of the most difficult is what's called correspondence theories versus coherence theories. And a correspondence theory means just that, that you have something you think is true, like it's raining outside, a statement, and I claim that's true. And it corresponds to, I go to the window and look, is it really raining out? If it is, then that's a true statement. And I have a true epistemology, a true knowing of something known. And if it's not, then it's false. But as philosophers looked into the correspondence theory, it occasionally became very hard to sustain that type of theory because what tended out to be the case was that an enormous number of truths seemed to be hooked together. And you would tell if that kind of system of hooked together truths was true or not, not whether it corresponded to something outside of itself, but whether it cohered intelligently and logically within itself. Mm -hmm. And these are called coherence theories. So typically somebody like Hegel has a coherence theory of truth because he wants to make sure that all of the statements that he's making in his idealistic system fit together and cohere. And there's actually nothing on the whole that you can point to outside of his system that you would say, oh, and this system fits with that thing over there. And so correspondence and coherent theories have tended to be at odds with each other for a long time. One of the ways that integral handles this is you, none of them are seeing that the world is made of whole lots. Mm. And so if you're looking at something in terms of it being a whole on, and if you look at the part of that whole on that's just a, um, a part, then a part will tend to, if it's going to be true, will tend to fit with another part. It will correspond and you get a correspondence theory. If you look at those two holons as part of a whole system, then the whole system will have to cohere. And so basically, uh, correspondence theories look at a thing from only one half of its reality and come up with these various parts have to correspond with various other parts. And then if that happens, then you get a correspondence theory of truth. 
And if you look at the, how the, all these parts fit together into a whole, then those parts will cohere. They have to. And so if you're tracking those using logic or some other form of tracking, then they'll basically show a coherence pattern. And so it's so often the case as we look through a lot of these various different approaches, we'll find that indeed most of these approaches are true, but partial. They have, they're talking about an important truth. And if you look at it through um, an integral lens, then they'll start to make sense. And you can see how they'll all start to fit together. Um, this isn't to say that all of them fit together. Some of them are just so goofy <laughs> that they won't fit with anything, including themselves. They neither <laughs> correspond nor cohere. So that we can get rid of that. But correspondence and coherence is a part of what epistemology most wants to do, which is to say it wants to, it's some sort of statement that it wants to be true and it will be true through some form of fitting together. And so what you need with sort of any theory is you'll need a means of fitting something together. Mm -hmm. Then you mean some, need some sort of data or measured result of what those give. And then as you get more and more data accumulated, then the third thing you want is some confirmation. And the way we do confirmation in virtually all theories of epistemology and ontology can be a little tricky. And that the whole point about a confirmation is you want to get somebody else, if you're working in science, for example, you want to get somebody else to try to repeat your experiment and see if they get the same thing that you got. So almost automatically by definition, all of these theories of epistemology leave out truths that only, let's say one person sees. If you're walking alone at night in the sky and you see a blazing comet come down and, and whack on the ground, and for some reason, nobody else sees it and nobody else is aware then you can't say there was a comment last night as a true statement that any epistemology would accept. So we have to kind of remember that and keep that in mind because that's an important sort of killer of any type of epistemology. Um, and I should just say for those that are not aware of these generalities at all, that philosophy generally breaks down into various schools. One is called epistemology, which is a theory of knowledge. And one is called ontology, which in a sense is a theory of what is known. 
So you have the knower, which operates with some sort of method of knowing or technique or experiment or something that will generate knowledge about the objects that are part of ontology. So we have ontology and we have epistemology. They both can cover subjective and objective realities. But one of the things that we notice about epistemology is it especially needs some sort of subjective awareness. And whether that's through human beings or robots, or it, it doesn't necessarily matter that much. It's just, there has to be some sort of subjective registration about the event that you're knowing. And one of the first things that you learn when you look at developmental studies is that there isn't just a single layer of consciousness that will act as the de facto seer of your object. And yet this is almost always overlooked. In most forms of epistemology, it's simply assumed that you have a rational observer and you describe what they have to do to know something and that's it. But if you look at the spectrum of consciousness, for example, you realize there are at least 12 different levels of consciousness, each of which can know something, but it's gonna know something based on the structure of the level of consciousness that it's at. So if you take like a six month old child, it would have only like stage four of Piaget's sensorimotor intelligence. And so if you take a ball and hide it behind a pillow, the child at that stage will think that the ball simply disappears. It doesn't exist anymore. And then if you take it out from behind the pillow, it'll, oh, it came back into existence. That was magic. So notice almost no philosophical schools of epistemology describe what that child has to do in order to know something as true. Rather, they simply assume that they're at a rational, stable level of consciousness, and that's it. So determining the level of consciousness that an epistemological system assumes is real and true and always there is an absolutely essential component of any of the schools of epistemology. And as we talk about them, we'll see how few of those take that into account. But let me give just some quick examples of why that's so important. Perfect. Because I said there were at least 12 or so major levels of consciousness. We can very carefully, just to make this point strongly, reduce those to three levels. 
And I've often done this for an introductory type explanation. We can reduce them to the eye of flesh, the eye of mind, and the eye of spirit. Mm -hmm. Now, each of those have, if we have 12 levels, each of those three has at least four or five sub structures or sub levels, but we'll just use those three. So one is the eye of flesh, one is the eye of mind or reason, and one of the is the eye of spirit or the eye of contemplation or meditation. The important thing to realize is that all three of those modes of knowing, if you want to look at it, are experiential in nature. So you can have sensory experience, you can have mental experience, you can have spiritual experience. And those are all real and they're all experiential evidence that's presented to you in a first person perspective. And and if, if what you're asking for in any epistemology is experiential evidence, all three of these eyes will give you experiential evidence so it's one of the things that i'll mention when we get to pragmatism william james took that belief which was called pragmatism and he applied it to religious experience because he knew religious experience was a real experience just like mental experience a mental experience is your experience when you go through mathematics or think about logic you're having an experience of those real realities. And of course, the eye of flesh is what science has unfortunately often been reduced to. So it, it's often thought that science, for its evidence, requires evidence from the five human senses or their extensions. We'll see a little bit later that that's not quite right. But um, James had a firm belief, as pragmatism does, that what was real in one's mind, as long as it made a discernible effect on your external behavior or your world, could be considered real. So if we're talking about the eye of, of epistemology, I would ask immediately, which eye are you talking about? The eye of flesh, the eye of mind, the eye of contemplation. Mm -hmm. Because neither one of them will substitute for the others. Both of them give very real data. So that's um, just an important example of those. And so if you're going to use any one of those, then what would be a means or a method that you would use. And I call these the three strands of good knowledge. Uh, And again, you can use either one of those, but the first strand is called a paradigm or an injunction. And this is actually using the word paradigm the way Thomas Kuhn actually used it which is a paradigm wasn't a big theory 
that somebody just came up with and it took all the smaller theories with it. For Thomas Kuhn, a paradigm was an actual experiment or an actual practice, a social practice that you did to create the type of data that you needed for your experiment. So in the structure scientific revolutions, it's often felt that Kuhn gave three or four big paradigms. There was like Ptolemy and then Copernicus and then Newton and then Einstein. And those were the big mega theories that came in and caused the structure of scientific revolutions. But Kuhn gave several hundred paradigms. Hmm. He included x-rays and batteries. And I mean, these were actual parts of experiments that you would use. And what a paradigm, or I also call it an injunction, because that's what it means, you do this. It's always in the form, if you want to know this, you must do this. So if you have any knowledge that you want to get, the first strand you have to do is you have to actually do some sort of action. Um, probably, I don't know, 99 plus percent of the, all the knowledge that we are aware of right now, we didn't get from just staring blankly at the world around us. When we did that, we got knowledge like the earth is flat and the sun goes around the earth. And even if you had a Satori back then, you could feel that you were one with the earth and one with the sun, but you'd still think the earth was flat. Right. And you're, you you're one with the flat earth. Yeah. So you really do have to have an injunction, some sort of pragmatic means that you use. And if you follow that injunction carefully, then you'll get to strand two, which I call illumination or data or direct experience. And that's what happens when you follow a paradigm, you'll generate various types of data. And these are all, generally speaking, experiences. Um, I also call them an illumination because that's what you're doing. Um, and of course you'll want that checked out with other people. So they'll perform the paradigm that you did. And that's important. They have to tell me what you did, what was your experiment that you did or whatever. And then if they follow it and get their data, their illumination, their experience, and it's the same as the one you got, and that happens several more times, then that's building a probability that that's a correct, that whatever inference you were using when you created a, a, a paradigm, let me find out if the cell has this, or let me find out um, what the suicide rate is in the suicide population is, if 
narcotics goes up 25%, whatever it is that you're looking for, whatever statement you want to make that you want to be real from your epistemology, you want to test that with as many people as you can. And so that's again, where if just one person sees it, no matter if it's real, it won't be accepted as real by any of, of the major epistemologies. So the, and the reason for that is that there's a third strand that you need for all good knowledge, and that's a confirmation or refutation. So if you do all three of those, if you engage in a paradigm, get a, an illumination, and then compare that with others, and all of those work out as they're supposed to, then you can say you have a truth that the epistemology that you followed gave an ontologically real event. The, it turns out that, not that we're gonna focus on science, we'll talk about that as a separate epistemology itself, but because it is the most widely used epistemology in the world today. Um, science has three different theories about what makes a good epistemology. And those three are actually exactly the three strands of good knowledge. Hmm. So the first one, the paradigm or injunction is the theories put forward by Thomas Kuhn, which is that all science is paradigm dependent. And then the second one is just straight empiricism itself, which is you get the experiential data that the paradigm unleashed. And then the third one, the confirmation or refutation refers to Karl Popper and his belief that a real science is not something that you get confirmation for, but that you get a reputation of so-called um, verifiability and his understanding is that there's no experiment you can do that would prove something in science you just keep getting more and more probabilities in its favor but if you find one item that disagrees with your theory so if your theory is all crows are black, all it takes is one white crow and there goes your theory, right. it's shot. So he maintained that fallibility is a mark of scientific knowledge. Um, that's come under a little bit of conflict lately um, for a lot of reasons we don't have to go into, mostly it, works with what actual scientists do. And most scientists don't set out to try and refute a statement. They set out to, they set out an experiment because they're trying to get proof for it. Right. Um, so we can remember that the reason I still include it is 
even if you reject the pauper falsifiability notion, you still have to include some sort of confirmation. And so it just goes back to the standard, get as many people to repeat your paradigm as you can, and therefore that'll work. So um, all of those are um, important for um, getting some sort of valid epistemology up and running. And again, they can be coherent or confirmational. Um, they importantly depend upon the level of consciousness that's engaged in doing the paradigm. Mm -hmm. And that becomes actually quite important even in the upper stages of science because as we look at, as more and more people have done research on the stages of cognitive development, they've started to find more and more stages beyond a simple rationality or what Piaget called formal operational cognition. So beyond that, there's um, Michael Commons, for example, has outlined four stages of development beyond that. And one of them includes um, multi-variant types of knowledge where the original typical rationality is just forms universal systems. Mm. And so there's not like Protestant chemistry and Hindu chemistry, there's just chemistry. And it's just universal structure, just as it is. And it's presented as this is just chemistry. But then there is above that multivariant, or he calls them metasystemic types of knowledge. That, for example, if you were a historian and you were looking at all the world's different cultures, you wouldn't probably just find all cultures have the same thing. Like it's all just chemistry. Right. No, it's not. There really is Protestant chemistry and Hindu chemistry and Irish chemistry and all. So there's a lot of variants. So that's multi or meta systemic because it's looking at the systemic structures of rationalism and dividing them up. So that multi-systemic is often a, a main ingredient of postmodernism because postmodernism believes in multiculturalism. Mm -hmm. And that's what metasystemic provides is you look at all these different cultures and how they're all different. And beyond that, that it's important to note that metasystemic can divide up the world into multicultural st um, structures, but it can't integrate them. Right. And so that happens when you get to what spiral dynamics would call second tier. 
And at that point, you start to pull together and integrate all of the different fragments that the postmodern world has created. And so they call this the paradigmatic stage because in science, it can paradigms pull together uh, an enormous number of different systems and integrate them into a single system. And then beyond that, there's even what he calls post-paradigmatic. Hmm. And that's where it takes all the different paradigms that have been formed and starts to unite all of them in one theory and one system and one framework. Is that the same as cross-paradigmatic? Cross-paradigmatic. Okay, gotcha. And interestingly, um, the only examples that they give of cross-paradigmatic are things like Darwin's theory of evolution, Einstein's theory of physics, and Ken Wilber's integral theory. So that's nice to know. Not too shabby. Um, but the point is, you can see how those levels of development start to become very important, even in science. Because we often think of science as, oh, it starts at orange and it's rational and all that. It is. But then it, it can, you can go up into metasystemic, paradigmatic, and cross-paradigmatic. And so, and just by the list of names of who people that have done that, you can see how having access to those stages would be incredibly important. Yeah. And you can also think that having somebody like Einstein and the way he's thinking or Newton or Darwin, that that's gonna be, that's gonna change the types of ontological objects that your epistemology sees right. because each of those higher levels is going to see stuff that can't be seen at any of the lower levels so overall the level of consciousness that's driving your epistemology is incredibly important and what we're looking for is in today's society, about 20% or so of the population are at green, postmodern, meta-systemic stages. Mm -hmm. And that means they're going to have access to multiculturalism, diversity, inclusivity, except they're not going to be able to do anything to actually cure those. Right. That happens only at the next, the integral stage or the paradigmatic stage. That's where they can start pulling them together. So in terms of polarization, postmodernism is not helping. And the only thing that apparently will help is when we get a leading cultural edge of evolution that's actually at 
the paradigmatic or integral stages of development, because those would then automatically start pulling together the fractured pieces that postmodernism has given us. Um, so that's worth uh, taking into uh, account and consideration. Mm -hmm. It's also, um, well, I don't often like to give percentages of people at different stages because it does sound like it's being very judgmental. Um, you know, oh, 20% are here, 50% are here, 15% are here, only 2% are here. Um, but it's worth saying that in these stages of development, one of the intermediate, I say low to intermediate stages is called the ethnocentric or amber stage. And it is ethnocentric for both meanings of the word ethnocentric. One meaning of ethnocentric it, compared to its previous stages, which are all called ethno or egocentric, mm -hmm. that what happens when you move from an egocentric stage to an ethnocentric stage is that's a considerable move up and you can start to embrace identities with large groups of people. And so you can start to extend love and care and compassion to a lot more people. Um, you can take the role of other. So you start to perform different role functions in a society. And all of these are enormously positive and they especially were positive in our history. When we went from tribal egocentric to agricultural ethnocentric, that was a staggeringly huge leap up for humanity. And so in that sense, these are very, very good but compared to the next highest stage beyond ethnocentric is what's called world-centric, rational stages. And if you look at it compared to rational, then it's a real problem because although an ethnocentric stage can help a person expand their identity from just themselves to an entire group, it stops with entire group or groups and it can't see beyond that. So it has a very strong us versus them mentality and it creates religions that are very fundamentalistic and problematic. So um, members of ISIS, for example, are all from an ethnocentric stage. And ethnocentric is, means, uh, is used in the bad sense, meaning that it's ethnically prejudiced. It's us versus them. Mm -hmm. So it does tend to generate Nazis, KKKs, um, homophobes, xenophobes, 
um, all the list of negative things in the culture wars that get brought up. But again, what's never mentioned is the stage or level that they're at. But one of the problems is Robert Keegan, for example, in his book, In Over Our Heads, estimates from research that he's done that three out of five Americans don't make it to world-centric integral. Right. That means around 60% of them are still at ethnocentric or lower. And so this shows up in an enormous number of places um, in social justice activists, for example, claim that this is the most racist, sexist country in, the, in history. And, but what they're not doing is teasing apart the right-hand laws from left-hand interior stages of development. On our right-hand legal system, it used to be completely legal, for example, for if you were a contractor, you were building hotels. It was actually specified that you had to build hotels for white people and hotels for black people. That was a law. It was necessary that you did that. In 1871, a woman applied for a legal law practice certificate in Illinois, she was told that she couldn't do that because it was illegal for women to be lawyers. She took it to the Illinois State Supreme Court and they agreed it was illegal for a woman to be a lawyer. It went to the United States Supreme Court and in a vote of seven to one, they agreed it was illegal for women to be lawyers. Well, that is an example of systemic racism. It means it's actually built into the law in the right-hand quadrants, the same as the different building regulations for Blacks. That's a systemic racism. It's built into the law. But now, particularly from the 60s, it's actually illegal. There are laws against doing every one of those racist or sexist things. If a black couple goes to a bank and tries to get a loan and they're turned down for being black, they will be, the bank will be arrested and charged with breaking the law because it's against the law. There's no law that says whenever you're giving out loans, give out fewer of them to black people. Those don't exist. Every one of those laws has been a race. And so people that believe in the right-hand quadrants, they tend to say, this country has never been better. There's never been less racism, less systemic sexism, and so on. Um, the same is true of gays. Three decades ago, it was illegal to be a gay. And then there was this whole Stonewall revolution that turned it around. And now they can get legally married. Mm -hmm. um, 
So all of that systemic racism and sexism is gone. The problem is in the left-hand quadrants where individuals are growing and developing, if three out of six of them are still at an ethnocentric stage, then the people who are applying those laws can apply them in racist or sexist ways. So there is no law, for example, that says, if you're a policeman, you must stop black drivers more often than white drivers. It doesn't exist. And yet it often happens. Mm -hmm. And it happens because if you have somebody springing from the ethnocentric stage of development, that's where the racism is gonna reside. And so the people that look at just the left hand, like the social justice activists, they claim that this is the worst period ever, that it's never been worse for women or blacks and so on. And so you have clearly this divide between the right hand and the left hand views, both of them, again, being correct. So anyway, that's a little side issue. On that. <laughs> and we'll, we'll pick all this up for sure in a future episode, Ken, because I've been um, having a series of conversations that I've been framing as post-woke. Um, so here's a way for us to actually build bridges with some of the wokesters that are out there and rescue some of the babies from that particularly nasty bathwater. And I right. think that there are some, um, some integral ideas and concepts that fit very, very naturally with this that can help us uplift the overall conversation. So we'll, we'll, we'll get into that in a future episode for sure. Great, great.